Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. I am the guy who hosts that show and talks to people on it, and I, I'm happy you're here listening to it. I'm really excited about today's guest. Theta Scotchpole is, I think it's fair to say, a legendary political scientist at this point. She's at Harvard. She's been the head of the American Political Science Association. She has won, I think, pretty much every prize you can win in political science. She's written tremendous books on the Tea Party, on states, on uh, on a wide variety of topics. And I was really helpful for me, uh, has been at times when I've interviewed her before and, and really here, in trying to help me think about how does a political scientist look at politics? How does a political scientist figure out what to read, what to pay attention to? How do you sort of approach everyday politics, kind of the news of the day, an election, a scandal, with the tools of political science? Our conversation, you know, really focuses on that. And, and in doing, we get into the Koch brothers, how to think about funding networks in, in American politics, how to think about who has power and who doesn't, what institutions tell you and how to follow them as drivers of individual behavior. I think it's a really, really fun episode if you're somebody who likes trying to think about how to make your, your political thinking more rigorous. She has a lot of really good insight on that, and, and she was very generous with her time. So I hope you all enjoy it. But before we get into it with Theta, uh, if you've been enjoying this podcast, I, I have one request for you this week, uh, just one, which is find an episode you've enjoyed of it, Rachel Maddow or Bill Gates or, or Tony Podesta, or maybe you're going to love today with, with Theta. Send it to a friend on their Facebook page, put it out on Twitter, share it around with people so, so folks know this is going on and it may be something they would enjoy. I'd, I'd really appreciate it, and, and hopefully your friends would really appreciate it too. The other thing, which is less of a question and hopefully more of a, a fun opportunity, is I am really interested in knowing who you would like to hear on this podcast. Uh, I, I really want to know who you want to hear these interviews with. So please email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. And let me know who, who you want to see on a future episode, and I will try to make it happen. So without further ado, here's Theta Scotchpole. So one, I'm I'm excited to be doing this. I'm a great admirer of your work. I've I've learned a lot from it, and I'm a great admirer in general of your discipline. I, I really think that one of the crucial things for me as a journalist has been discovering how much political science could actually add to my understanding of politics, which is not something I really understood in the same way even when I was a political science student in college. So I wanted to start by asking you to give an explanation of what political science is. When, when people come to you and say, oh, well, politics isn't a science, it isn't like chemistry or physics, what do you say to them? What does it mean to be a political scientist? What political science has in common with chemistry and physics and 
other natural sciences is that it, many of its members of the discipline are trying to look at evidence. We're trying to look at facts about what's happening in the political world, what's happening among voters, what's happening among legislators. Uh, many of us even look at social movements. That's what we have in common with science. We try to formulate arguments about how politics works and test them against factual evidence. And how do you do that? I mean, what is the, the, the sort of collection? I guess a good way of asking this question maybe is how do you follow something like an election that is different than how a, a news junkie follows it? <laughs> well, maybe not entirely differently, but too many blogs. <laughs> but Too, too uh, many blogs is, is a deep problem in, in modern, yeah. modern American life. It certainly is too much time spent clicking on blogs. Well, you know, political science is not all one thing. So I think, I think that's important to realize. There are varieties of political scientists. And one of the things that sets apart, say, the different camps of those who are studying American politics is the kind of evidence they would look to first. A, a lot of people in, in the discipline track um, opinion surveys and try to understand what different blocks of citizens or voters are thinking and saying that they're doing during an election. So we, we get a lot of debates about who's supporting Ted Cruz or who's supporting Donald Trump or in an earlier election, who's supporting uh, Obama versus Clinton. But um, another camp will say, well, it's much more interesting to track Congress. I, I think for if there's one institution that's it's the center of American politics for political scientists of all stripes, it's Congress, because American politics is different than a lot of parliamentary systems. We have a Senate and a House. They're elected by different groups of voters. They have elaborate procedures that affect what kinds of things come up for decision-making at all. And a bill can't pass unless it goes through both and gets to the president. So that makes for just endless possibilities for analyzing who's elected to Congress, what committees do they serve on, how does that affect their policy stance, what donations are they getting from wealthy people or interest groups like unions and businesses. And then there's my camp of political scientists. We're a minority. We call ourselves historical institutionalists. Speaking for myself, what that means is that I like to track things over time for quite a while before any given set of events that I'm analyzing. So if I'm going to look at a particular election, I'm interested in how it fits in a sequence of elections, not just what's happening day to day. And I also start by looking at organizations rather than individual voters or even individual donors. When you do that, is that using the tools of the historian? And, and when you put organizations at the forefront like that, why do you do that? Be because I think that when you think about how we cover American politics, we really cover it through the story of individuals, the story of Donald Trump or the story of Bernie Sanders or the story of Barack Obama or Mitt Romney. And I'm always very fascinated by the way your story begins with institutions like political parties or the networks run by the Koch brothers or other players like that. How do those emphases differ in terms of what kinds of things you end up thinking are important? Well, let me give you an example. A few years back, the Tea Party broke out early in Obama's presidency in 2009, 2010. And how did different people go about thinking about it? Well, historians started looking at the rhetoric 
that people who called themselves Tea Partiers or participated in demonstrations were engaging in and then check to see whether they really were saying the same things as the Founding Fathers or perhaps compared them to earlier social movements, the Know Nothings or the John Birch Society, for example. I find that interesting, but my take is different from that. It's also different from, let me just give a couple of other ways in which people went about it. Many journalists, for example, visited public demonstrations and looked at the signs people were carrying and maybe interviewed a couple folks who were making the most flamboyant statements. And political scientists, when they got around to the Tea Party, for the most part, paid attention to what Americans were saying in opinion polls about whether they knew what it was or whether they supported it or didn't support it. And then they were very interested in how it affected, for example, the Republican vote margins and whether Republican candidates who were more or less conservative got through the primaries and the general election. My approach with Vanessa Williamson was to say, okay, what organizations make up the Tea Party? So we looked at the national organizations where elites were claiming that they were part of the Tea Party or were speaking for it or were helping it get ahead. We looked at Fox News and right-wing talk radio and compared their talking about the Tea Party and coverage of it and the timing of what they were doing to what other media outlets were doing. And above all, for grassroots Tea Partiers, we went beyond the attitude surveys and tried to figure out why ordinary conservatives were forming groups, organizations, local tea parties. They ultimately created 900 of them all over the United States. We did research on those 900 using the internet, and then we went out and interviewed people who were activists and leaders in those groups to try to figure out how they formed the groups, where they got the idea, how they got together with others. And finally, we asked, how did those local grassroots tea parties relate to those top-down organizations like Americans for Prosperity or Freedom Works, where people sitting in Washington or New York offices were claiming to speak for these grassroots populace. Um, and we found out that there was a very loose relationship. So when we wrote about the Tea Party, we talked about it as a set of top-down efforts, bottom-up efforts, and we explored how they played off each other to drive the Republican Party to the right. Your, your book with Vanessa Williamson on the Tea Party, I really, if, if people listening are, are interested in the Tea Party, I do think it's the best book on the subject. Do you want to just talk for a minute about what you found, about what you think the Tea Party is and the ways that differs from the media narrative, maybe, about what the Tea Party is? Well, let's, let's take right, uh, right now, years later. A lot of people say, well, the Tea Party's gone because they look at national opinion surveys and they see that most Americans don't like the label anymore far fewer than the up to a third who said that they approved of it or supported it in some vague way back in 2009, 10, 11. Um, I'm just going to interrupt you one sec to just say for in case somebody listens to this long in the future, we are we are talking in 2016, just to put us in a time and place. Yeah. All right. By now, you know, the Tea Party label is not highly visible, not highly visible in the media. And it's not popular in opinion polls. So a lot of commentators will say, well, that's over. For someone with my orientation, I need to go deeper than that. First of all, I need to see whether the kinds of people who said they sympathized with or did things in the grassroots part of the Tea Party six to eight years ago are still having an impact 
uh, and they are in Republican Party politics. They're the ones who, in many cases, are supporting Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. What about the elite organizations that, for example, those tied to the Koch brothers, Americans for Prosperity, the most important of them? It's a national organization, has state organizations in 34 states. It has a lot of resources to kick around, and it used to say that it was a big player in the Tea Party. Now, I don't think it mentions that so much, but of course it has an interest in the 2016 election, and it's not supporting the same candidates that those grassroots populist Tea Partiers are supporting. Well, one of the things we learned when we took seriously that this was not just one thing, but top-down and bottom-up, and they didn't fit entirely together originally, was to realize that they might come into some kind of conflict down the line, and they have in Republican Party primaries, because grassroots populist Tea Party people, or the people who used to call themselves Tea Partiers, are very upset about immigration in the United States. They were back then, and they still are now. That's what they told us when we did face-to-face -face interviews with people. That's what their website said at the local level. And that's not the top issue for the elite groups that back then used to say that they supported the Tea Party. They're interested in things like blocking climate regulations, slashing taxes on the wealthy. Ultimately, they would love to privatize Social Security and Medicare. And yet, many grassroots Tea Party people, because they're older whites, are on Social Security and Medicare. That's not their issue. I think this is so interesting, and I think it's been a big part of this election. So I'm curious if you think this is a broader historical trend we're seeing right now, this divergence between grassroots, not just groups, but just ordinary voters and the elite-driven institutions that tend to represent them, both political parties like the Republican or Democratic Party, but also you know interest groups like Tea Party groups or unions or others. Because it does feel to me that one of the stories of the last couple of years in American politics has been this increasing ability of insurgent candidates and outside players to drive wedges between where the grassroots and the party elite or the movement elite actually have pretty different interests and pretty different ideas about what they're trying to achieve in American politics. Well, on the one hand, we shouldn't get carried away. We're right now at an early part of presidential primaries, and presidential primaries, presidential elections are a time it's a regular cycle in American politics when a lot more citizens get involved than do at any other time. And it's not a new thing for ordinary people anywhere on the political spectrum to have different concerns than the elites who claim to speak for them or the political parties that are hoping to win the White House. On the other hand, I do think there have been some big shifts recently. I would say right now we're seeing a lot of ordinary voters who are not taking cues from whoever the Republican establishment is. I'm not at all sure who that is anymore. I'm not uh, sure they're sure uh, who it is. I, I don't. Yeah, I guess, let's say Mitch McConnell. I mean, I, he, he qualifies. Uh, sure. The Democratic Party establishment is much more robust, because partly because it holds the presidency right now, partly because its party organizations are still stronger compared to their outside groups than Republican Party organizations are compared to their outside groups. And, you know, Ezra, I want to point out that that's a way of thinking about it that my brand of political science creates some 
value added compared to just looking at voters and opinion polls. I'm currently leading a research project called the Research Project on the Shifting U.S. Political Terrain. And what we have set out to do is to document the organizations that are operating in politics on the center right and the center left in the United States, either nationally or across many states. And the first move we've made over the last six months is to form lists of party and extra party organizations around the Democratic Party, around the Republican Party, and just add up their budgets. What's been happening to the budgets of these groups in the 2000s, 2002 to 2014. Well, when we did that for a first cut, I was astonished to see that the proportion of resources controlled by organizations on the right has shifted dramatically in just that short period away from the Republican Party committees, the Republican National Committee, the Senatorial Committee, the House Committee, the Governor's Committee, one that manages legislative battles in the states, across the states, toward Extra party funders and constituency organizations, groups claiming to speak for constituencies on the very far right. That hasn't happened to the same degree in the democratic liberal orbit. So I would say the Republican Party is being pulled apart from on top and below much more completely than the Democratic Party is. And part of the manifestation of that is that the far right is able to set the agenda for Republicans. They've been moving further and further to the right on a whole series of issues, so far to the right that they often don't even reflect the opinions of many, of majority of Republican voters. What you say there, Theta, is super interesting because something I've been trying to think about more rigorously in the last couple of years is this clearly it seems that the Democratic Party has retained an institutional strength the Republican Party hasn't, but I've not really seen that tested anywhere. And what you say here is sort of the first time I've ever heard anybody put some kind of data to that. Do you have a theory for why that is? And, and if I could add a question onto that, do you think that the Democratic Party is going to go in the same direction and it's simply on a time lag? Um, I don't think the Democratic Party is going to go in the same direction, but who knows? You know, I don't think <laughs> political scientists are great at exactly predicting what will happen. I can tell you how I'm thinking about this now because, in a way, it is a new approach. When we set out in this project to try to figure out what's going on around these two parties, we ask ourselves, well, how in the world are we going to do that? And I guess it just dawned on us that it would be nifty to look at various measures of organizational clout and treat the Democratic and the Republican parties as organizations that raise and deploy resources. Now, money is an obvious one, so we started with simple budgets. But ultimately, people are just as interesting. So our research is also going to be looking at staffing and the career lines of people who serve in the party committees and, um, of course, elected party offices. We know about those already. And people who serve in the various advocacy and constituency and donor groups around the parties. Now, one thing that we've definitely seen recently is the rise of these concerted donor groups. We call them 
big money fat cat consortia, you could call them for short. The Koch <laughs> network is an obvious one, but the Democracy Alliance is also one to the left of the Democratic Party. These are not just your garden variety PACs that rise up and the one that, that to fund Barack Obama or a Senate campaign or even to several campaigns like Karl Rove's. They are literally hundreds of mega-wealthy Americans, and we know there are more and more of these mega-wealthy Americans, multimillionaires and billionaires, who meet regularly and strategize politically and pool their resources to some degree, certainly not completely, but come together to direct resources in the political process. And they do that quite self-consciously with the aim of either bolstering or pushing the major political parties. So a really interesting thing to do, which we're doing right now, is tracking the Democracy Alliance and the Koch Network. Well, these are secretive conclaves that meet twice a year, each of them, sometimes in the same fancy resorts, but to some degree in different places. And they put the heads of the millionaires and billionaires together, raise a lot of money, and direct that money. So how do they do that, and where are they directing the money? Well, on the Koch side, it's hard to find out because they're secretive, but journalists have been very good at finding documents people accidentally leave behind and writing reports based on interviews. And I've simply sat down and put all of those in a database and so I can squeeze out every piece of information I can about what's been happening in this Koch network since 2003. Well, it's astonishing. They've gone from about 17 businessmen, fat cats coming together for several days with the Koch brothers to over 500. And they're raising, in this election cycle, they aim to raise about a billion dollars. And most wow. of that money is being directed at a very interlocked set of organizations that are directed by the Kochs and their immediate associates. Those organizations have been very good at pulling the Republican Party toward the far right because they have resources that Republican politicians and officeholders want. They have data, they have activists, and they have financial contributions. So one thing I've wondered about this is that if you go back to 2012, the narrative was that we would have this super PAC-driven takeover of American politics, not just what the Kochs were doing, but also Karl Rove and his American Crossroads groups. And that has often seemed, it seemed in that election and subsequently to be a bit of a, a dog that didn't bark. The Republicans had a lot more super PAC money in 2012, but they got beat at every level of government. Obviously, they, they did very well then in 2014. But this year, we've seen Jeb Bush, who just came in with a tremendous amount of super PAC money, spend millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars to lose a bunch of altitude in the polls. And so <laughs> one question I, I've had about this is putting aside how it makes us feel, right? I mean, there, there's certainly something that, that makes you feel concerned about democracy to see 500 guys who are richer than you can possibly imagine coming together to try to figure out how to spend that money to change American politics. It's often seemed that this has ended up being a tax rich people place upon themselves, that they then transfer this money to other political consultants without a whole lot of effect on on American politics. But but that's not your view, at least of the Koch network. So I'd love to hear a bit about what you think that impression gets wrong. Well, it's partly that we need to ask more questions. We certainly have to go beyond asking which candidate are 
particular rich people or even particular PACs supporting. Because you're right, a lot of it is like, uh, the analogy I like to use is, you know, medieval lords. They were armed and they and everybody needed a medieval lord to defend them because other medieval lords were out there creating depredation in the countryside. Well, once you've got a lot of millionaires and billionaires adopting candidates and funding PACs and they're not doing it in any coordinated way, they just create an arms race and they fund a lot of beach houses for political consultants. And frankly, I think that is a major thing that's happened on both sides of the partisan divide in recent years. But there are some of these donor groups that are much more long-term and strategic and are not simply focused on individual candidates or even individual election cycles. That's why both the Democracy Alliance and the Koch Network are interesting. They've created sustained relationships, networks, and discussions of political strategy over more than a decade now. Oh, well, it's just a decade for the Democracy Alliance. In the case of the Koch Network, they're actually deploying that money, I would argue, not, not to candidates. They audition candidates. They try to get candidates to want to do what they want them to do in policy terms. But they're deploying a lot of the money to universities, to think tanks, to advocacy groups, and above all, to Americans for Prosperity, which is organized as a federation that parallels the Republican Party in most of the country. That's a massive political formation of the kind that most journalists talking about money and politics are not talking about at all. Do you want to say a word on what you mean by a parallel federation of the Republican Party? Because I think this is a really fascinating point that you've been making, that what they're creating is in effect a shadow Republican Party, right, or, or a shadow conservative party that is out of view of a lot of people just paying attention to politics. But it is performing for many politicians the functions that the Republican Party, if, if it was stronger, would normally perform or perform more effectively. But in order to access this sort of tremendous set of resources, you need to buy into the agenda of Americans for Prosperity, which is a more conservative agenda than what the Republican Party would force. Is that a, is that a fair description of, of what's going on? It's a more conservative agenda in a specific way. It's focused on political economic issues. It does not talk about the big social issues very much, abortion, homosexuality, immigrants even. And it's an interesting organization to me because it combines central direction in the way that an authoritarian political party or a corporation would do. It's got a very tight managerial hierarchy with a lot of managers at the national and regional level. But then it has something that most mm, leftist organizations in America don't have now that the unions are becoming weaker. It has organizations in the states so that you have 34 paid state directors and in most cases other paid staffers who can maintain a continuous presence between as well as during election campaigns. And, you know, a lot of the journalism about them focuses on how much money they spend on election ads. Well, that's important, but it's not the most important thing that's going on because all of these organizations are able to keep in touch with hundreds of thousands of conservative activists and get them to contact the state legislature. They can write op-eds. They can coordinate with right-wing think tanks. 
they've had a tremendous impact in policy in the states. For example, getting a lot of states to pass otherwise unpopular curbs on union rights to bargain and uh, collect dues. That is an operation that is changing the balance of organizational forces in American politics. And when we did detailed research on the careers of state directors in Americans for Prosperity, we started into it with the belief that they would turn out to be like other right-wing, low-tax advocacy groups like Club for Growth. Club for Growth people are mostly right-wing operatives of one kind or another who have careers in the advocacy world, not in the Republican Party. But we collected systematic data on where state directors come from to American Prosperity and where they go after they spend about 20 months, typically, as state directors. And we discovered that they come from Republican Party staff offices and campaigns and often go back to even higher level Republican Party staff offices and campaigns. So this organization is separate from the Republican Party at the top and able to push a very far-right political economic agenda, but it is thoroughly intertwined with the career lines of the Republican Party. And it offers resources that candidates want. That gives it almost unprecedented leverage to pull a major U.S. political party toward its agenda. When, when you think about the rise of these fat cat consortia, which I really, really like that term, on both the left and the right, I can think of a number of different possible explanations, right? One could be rules in campaign finance reform where we've sharply limited the donations you can make to, to candidates and political parties, but you can make unlimited independent expenditure donations. And so that's clearly an incentive if you want to spend a lot of money on American politics to do it by creating your own or do it somehow outside of the official system. Another could be that we have a stunning rise in just incomes of the top 1%. And as that happens... They just have more money to spend on politics. They're going to organize and spend it more effectively. And, and I'm, I'm sure there are many more, but I, I'm, I'm curious if you have a structural explanation or the beginnings of a, of a, of a hypothesis of, of, of why this is happening now. Well, I can tell you how uh, my kind of political scientist goes about thinking about it. The first that would be thing great. I do, <laughs> the first thing I do is I look at timing. And once it became clear that these fat cat consortia, the leading ones that I would call social consortia that have a big social component of networking and interacting and regular meetings, emerged in the 2003 to 2005 period. That sort of kills off the hypothesis that it's all Citizens United. So I don't believe it's all Citizens United. I mean, now the process of changing the tax rules and the rules about political contributions has, of course, gone back quite a long ways. But I think we can fairly say that rich people in America figure out ways to channel their money into public affairs. They always have, and they probably always will. And there is no single legal or tax change that drives this. It enables it, and it encourages it to go into some channels rather than others. That said, it's certainly the case that as you get general polarization between the parties, and that's been pretty dramatic, increasingly so, since the 1980s, and that interacts with a lot of people with too much money on their hands. 
I mean, that's how I would describe America today. We've got a lot of people who really have too much money on their hands. Of course, there's going to be the opportunity to begin to concert efforts on both sides of the partisan divide. Beyond that, though, you know, I'm going to tell you, I learned the most about the Koch networks by reading Daniel Shulman's remarkable biography of the Koch brothers. It does matter that these two brothers put themselves forward to be collective goods providers for the fat cats on the right. They have put a lot of effort into organizing these twice-yearly seminars and creating a patina of ideas and moral outlook to go along with the obvious economic interests that are in play. That has created a strategic capacity that I would call libertarian Leninism, small l. It's quite remarkable, and it does depend on the biographies as well as the opulence of these two brothers. So we've talked a bit about how different branches of political science see American politics, but but obviously for most people, the competition for who they learn about politics from is not between parts of political science, but is but is actually within the media. So I'm I'm, I'm curious at and, and speaking as a member of the media, <laughs> <laughs> what are three things that you think the media repeatedly gets wrong in the way it writes about, reports about, and thinks about American politics? Well, you know, Ezra, I want to say the media's gotten a lot better, and I, I think the rise. Oh, of I thank you. <laughs> I think I think the rise of explainer journalism is quite remarkable. Now, that's a you know that's a niche in journalism, and I don't think we can fairly say that the average American citizen is clicking on explainer sites like yours several times a day or or a week, like many Not of us yet. In, in academia are doing, but. There, there really has been, and this, this is part and parcel of the rise of a highly educated middle-class college graduate population in the United States that's pretty sophisticated about politics. So if you want to find systematic information on lots of things, on policy trends, even on the kind of research that people in my camp in political science do, let alone a lot of other political scientists, a lot of sociologists, a lot of economists, you can find that now in the media in a way that you could not before the rise of the internet and explainer journalism sites. That said, I do think there's a tendency in journalism as a whole to focus way too much on presidential horse race politics and not bring the somewhat bigger picture into citizens' awareness. And even the money in politics thing. I mean, we're now getting a constant array of stories about wealthy people who give to this or that candidate without, I think, much attention to the kinds of things I've just been talking about with organized groups of donors and how they're changing the ways the political parties are operating. We don't see very many things that connect policy outcomes to the stuff of elections. And yet, lots of things are happening and not happening in American politics that just do not fit what most citizens would like to see our democratic government doing. That needs to be brought into clear focus and some understanding of what might be driving that if we're going to ask citizens in general to take that into account when they make their choices as voters and as small donors, because small donors also matter in American politics. 
give me an example of the kind of thing you think is being left out in terms of the way that elections end up driving policy. Where, where do you think the, the fuzziness is in that narrative? Well, for example, all the major candidates in both parties that are contending right now have tax plans. Those tax plans tend to get reported on in, ter in the terms that the candidates themselves prefer rather than rigorously compared about what they're going to mean for not just the tax rates that everybody pays, but what government will be able to do that people care about. I don't think there's very much of that. In the health care debate, my goodness, I mean, what can I say? The whole debate over Obamacare has been so much about whether people liked the term or not. That is still the kind of reporting that's most standard. Do people tell a pollster that they approve of Obamacare or they don't? Well, that's highly related to whether they approve of Obama or not. I don't think most American citizens have ever heard what's actually in the Affordable Care Act, and they haven't heard very much about the various parts of health care that they and their families and communities have a stake in and how they've changed as this massive and very important law has been implemented. Yeah, no, as somebody reported on the on the healthcare bill, <laughs> it is a problem. I mean, something that is fascinating to me in the way we report about this kind of thing is Obamacare is very well covered. The the number of words written about it was well, it was tremendous, frankly. It was overwhelming. But the thing is that as these conflictual policy processes wear on, the things that we focus almost all of our writing and reporting on are the things that are still in play. And they're usually smaller and, and often they don't happen at all. So in Obamacare, I think if you go back and you, you tallied up all the writing on Obamacare and you looked at how much of that writing was about the public option versus how much was about the structure of subsidies, how many subsidies there were, who got them, how did they get them. I think that in terms of those two things' importance to the bill, the public option obviously didn't happen. The subsidies are, are core to how people interact with it at every level. I think we were very, very off there. But the reason we were off was that the subsidies were not highly controversial within the context of the bill. Well, the public option was. And so the subsidies, insofar as there was going to be a bill, they got baked in pretty early. Whereas the public option, it was always, you know, would Joe Lieberman do it or would he not? Would Ben Nelson do it or would he not? And it was always changing. And so something that I, I think about a lot and that worries me a lot, it's one of the reasons that I've been experimenting with some of the things in Vox that we're experimenting with, like card stacks is how do you keep focus on some of these big important questions that don't change as much during the course of a debate, but that are things that as people tune in and tune in and tune in and tune in, they really need to know even though they're not changing. Well, all right. I agree with that. And I, you know, I think there are good reasons why journalism has to to link things to controversies that are happening. There's a, there's a dramatic side to things, and to the degree that people pay attention to the news at all, drama is part of it. And I'm not, I'm not going to look down my nose in some, you know, haughty, professorial way about that. That's not how I feel about it. But let's take the dramas that are still happening about Obamacare. We don't need another article that reports on the latest percentage of people who say they like it or don't. The drama is in the states now. My research associates and I are about to publish an article that is all about the civil war within the Republican Party over Medicaid expansion, which, by the way, people in many states would not know it by the name Medicaid, and they would not think of it in terms of Obamacare. There would be a local term that would need to be used. 
you know, this is tearing the Republican Party apart. This is one of the areas where the Kochs have made a huge difference in their, in their far-right allies. They oppose Republican governors who try to accept big subsidies to provide health insurance to the people who are caught in the gap between the exchanges and a traditional Medicaid. And yet, it, hospital associations, chambers of commerce, and Republican governors have consistently pushed for those expansions. That's a drama. And it really makes a difference in people's lives. The decline of state and local journalism and the resources available to it is part of the reason that doesn't get as much attention as it should. But there's some pretty fascinating stories that national journalists could be telling about that, too. You and I, in past conversation, have talked a little bit about frustrations with the way that political science has evolved in a much more quantitative direction and that you think that there are, are blind spots that gives a discipline. I'd love to hear you talk about some of what those are. What happens when you focus sort of on, on so much on what you can measure and what you can model? Well, I'm a big believer in quantification when you can do it. So, for example, when I told you that I sat down and put together databases that squeezed everything I could out of news accounts, that's so that I can create trend graphs and in the case of our work on Americans for Prosperity, we've actually come up with measures of the strength of right networks in different states that we plug into statistical models and show that they have a significant impact above and beyond partisanship. So I'm not against quantification. What I worry about is getting fixated on certain kinds of data and ignoring other kinds. For example, because of data on opinion surveys are online because data on congressional votes are online and you don't even have to leave your armchair to manipulate those data. There's a heavy emphasis on more and more arcane investigations of exactly the same questions asked using exactly the same kinds of data. I'm a big believer in systematically gathering new kinds of data sets and where possible, using them in interaction with others in quantitative as well as qualitative accounts of political developments. The other thing that makes me different is that I'm interested in change over time, not simply snapshots. And I think there's a lot of incentive in, in standard political science to just look at a snapshot and not look at at, say, the timing of how things are unfolding. You were saying earlier that you're working on, speaking of change over time, a working group on the shifting U.S. political terrain. So this is something I think it's always hard for people to keep in mind is how much actually is or isn't changing over time. So compared to, I don't know, 30 years ago, what do you think is different about American politics, structurally, deeply, across elections, different now than it was then? So we're thinking about 1980. Well, yeah. in 1980, we were at the end of the, what I would call the civil rights polarization period. You know, there is some very excellent quantitative work that I'm sure, Ezra, you're aware of from uh, the Princeton people that has these quantitative measures of ideological positioning of people in Congress. And what they showed is that the left and the right tended to sort themselves out after the civil rights struggles of the 1960s with the right crowding into the Republican Party as the Democrats in the South uh, disappeared and more liberals crowding into the Democratic Party. 
Okay, that's as of 1980. If you look at the period since then, and you can start with the quantitative measures of the ideological scores from the Poole-Rosenthal people, you see asymmetric polarization unfolding. You see the Republicans continuing to move ever further to the nether right, while Democrats have pretty much stayed a kind of melange of liberals and moderate liberals since the 1980s. That's true in Congress. A lot of it's true in the larger electorate. It has taken Republican office holders and candidates further away from the median American voter views on a whole series of issues, and even further away from the typical voters in their own party than Democratic office holders and candidates are from the typical views of voters in their party. That's really interesting. That begins to raise all kinds of questions for me. Why has that happened? Political scientists a decade ago would have said when political parties lose big elections like the Republicans did in 2008, they should move to the middle to try to re-attract support from moderate voters. Well, that is definitely not what has happened with Republican officeholders and candidates in the period since 2008. But that process of moving away from the middle happened from the 1980s on. What are three books, political science or not political science, that you would recommend people read to understand American politics in a deeper way? Well, I think that the work by Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson is extraordinary work. don't completely agree with them, but I think they had a book called Off Center some years ago, and then they're, they're about to come out with one. American Amnesia, right? American Amnesia, which I think people will need to read. It's about the ways in which our political system has taken us away from the formula that it made America uh, an economic giant, but one where prosperity was broadly shared and the middle and the bottom of the society was making gains. It's about the loss of the American dream for a lot of ordinary Americans. And that's the big question that we, all of us, need to be thinking about. What has happened and why has it happened? Because, you know, we're seeing right now on both the left and the right a lot of angry citizens. And maybe they're not all angry about exactly the right thing. Maybe they don't always have the correct diagnosis of why it is that their family is worried about their children getting jobs that will lead to a life and as an income as good as the parents. Uh, So I'm not going to say that ordinary people always know exactly why things are happening. But I can tell you, ordinary American citizens, and I, I try to get out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, and out of Harvard University as much as I can. I try to listen to what people are saying out there, talk sports with people, because I'm a big Patriots fan. So I'm <laughs> able to get into an argument or agreement with anybody who cares about football, and that's a lot of people in, in this country. And then I always hear what they're saying about uh, politics. And there is just a lot of anger. There's a lot of people thinking something's gone wrong here. Our government, our democracy is not working right. I want to point to one other book that I recommend people pay attention to. It's by Kathy, Kathy Kramer. She's a political scientist who goes about studying public opinion very differently than sitting in front of a computer and calling up the latest surveys. She actually went into every part of the state of Wisconsin repeatedly, found groups of people who were sitting around cafes or stores or 
libraries talking about affairs in their town and just listen to the way they talked about politics for several years. This was obviously took a lot of work. And then she wrote about how people really construct their political world. And she found the answer to a puzzle that I think helps us understand what's happened in Wisconsin, that even though a lot of people outside of Madison and Milwaukee are actually benefiting from government programs, they think government serves only the people in the cities and the big university centers. They have an us versus them understanding of government and politics. They feel they've been betrayed by the political process. And the first question they ask about any candidate or any group that tries to talk politics with them is, are you us or are you them? That's what a lot of politics is about. Think about the movement behind Donald Trump. He is saying to angry Americans, we've been screwed. We're getting beaten in the world. I'm going to make us all winners again. And he's identifying enemies, outgroups, that he wants to blame for that. China, Mexicans, immigrants, Muslims. Well, you know, we can all tut-tut about that. I think it's fairly scary to see the rise of that kind of politics. And I think there are a lot of things about the dissolution of the Republican Party and the role of right-wing media that are making it very easy for him to get that message out there in a very uh, blaring uh, way. But he is tapping into the us versus them dimension of politics, which is frankly quite central for all people. And we, we're going to miss that if we spend a lot of time thinking that public opinion is about slicing and dicing different demographics and exactly what they think about this or that policy question. This is something that I've been thinking about a lot in, in the last year in the way that one thing that seems to me to be splitting the Republican Party is that there are some people who are skeptical of government because they think it fundamentally doesn't work, right? The, the, the sort of libertarian or, or more public choice idea that, that government activity is almost by its very nature doomed to be terribly inefficient, doomed to encroach on liberty, doomed to fail. Then there's a view that people don't like government because it taxes them. You're very rich. You don't want to pay more for, for what other people are doing. But then there's a, a view that people don't like government because it's helping other people when it should be helping them, that it's helping immigrants or urban minorities or someone else. And it feels that all these different groups have been gathered into a kind of a second best coalition in the Republican Party that was against government action for different reasons. But they could all agree that if it was going to be like this, they didn't want it at all. And what Trump has done effectively is peel off the group that felt that they wanted government action. They just wanted it to be benefiting them and they felt it was benefiting someone else. Yeah, and he's, as David Frum uh, explained in a recent Atlantic piece that I thought was really very, very insightful, Trump puts together what, what is put together in Europe but rarely put together in the United States. In Europe, you see nativists who also want to defend the core of the inherited welfare state that benefits longstanding citizens. The Republican Party in the United States, under the direction of the Kochs and other far-right, anti-government, ultra-free market conservatives, has tried to 
channel Christian right populists and these nativist populists that Trump is especially appealing to into a broad party coalition that would, when in office, mainly concentrating on cutting taxes on the rich and business, slashing business regulations, and ultimately they would love to get rid of Social Security and Medicare. That combination doesn't happen in Europe, but Trump is disrupting the Republican Party right now, an already weakened shell of a Republican Party, by, by giving voice to that possible coalition. That's a threat to both parties, actually. And if Trump is the nominee, I think he's going to give Hillary Clinton, who I still believe will be the Democratic nominee, a run for her money. If you were advising, as I'm sure you do pretty frequently, if you were advising uh, a young political scientist right now, what would you tell them to study? Not not in terms of getting ahead in the profession, but because it needs to be studied, because our understanding of it needs to be expanded from where it is now. Well, I would say the same thing I've said here, that we, we do need to get a grasp on these transformations that have left so many Americans feeling that our government is not working, if you're studying American politics. What I tell young political scientists, and I talk to them all the time, my first book was a PhD thesis on the French, Russian, and Chinese revolutions, which was totally impractical, frankly. Uh, it, almost, <laughs> it almost sunk. The revolutions me. were impractical or the, the Well, the, the revolutions was. definitely were, but the thesis, <laughs> <laughs> the thesis was not the right topic to do if you're going to get done on time, and I almost didn't. But I do tell young, uh, young people, and frankly, their eyes light up when I say this. I say the first thing you should ask is not what's the next question in the literature or what can I do to crunch the numbers in a way somebody says I should, but what puzzle do I want to figure out? What questions do I want to answer? And then you should use all of the most sophisticated methods you can put together, ideally a combination of them and different kinds of data to solve that puzzle. And when you're finished, you should communicate your findings to fellow academics in the densest jargon you can put together. And at the same time, you should also make sure that as we do in the Scholar Strategy Network, you boil down your work into two pages of plain English so that the word can get out to broader audiences of people who will also care about the answers you found, or at least the better ways of pursuing the puzzle that you posed. What I say is tackle puzzles that somebody besides the profession cares about. You want puzzles that both the profession and your fellow citizens would care to hear answers to. What is a policy problem or a policy idea that you think is really important, either because it's a, a very severe problem in people's lives or because it's just a great, a great idea that we should implement, but doesn't really get any attention in American politics? Well, there's one that's getting more attention, and that's having some system of paid family and medical leave that everybody contributes to and everybody can benefit from, because really the big social policy issue that we need to solve in the United States is how to how to make work and family mesh in an era where it's either single parents or two parents working. I think a lot has happened, actually, in, in some states to show that that can work, and it doesn't break the bank because it's not really based on taxes. It's, it's based on social insurance, everybody pitching in and workers needing it when they, when they have a birth in their family or a, an illness of a relative. So that's a, that's a good policy idea that can go forward. I'll tell you that the biggest policy battle that I think, well, there's two. 
uh, and we, we see young people passionate about these issues uh, in the real world. One is climate change and what kinds of policies can address it, and what policies have any possibility of building public understanding, building political coalitions that could get the U.S. government to act. That's not an easy puzzle to solve at all. And the other one is, what are we going to do about voting? Because voting rights are being systematically undermined. The research is, is very good, and it shows that entire constituencies are being discouraged from voting by very deliberately designed and enacted changes in voting hours and procedures. And, you know, I expect that to be one of the next big civil rights struggles in this country and one that will capture the imagination of people of all races and classes because it really is not something that fits the American ideal to put politicians in charge of choosing the voters that keep them or put them in office. Finally, if people want to, as I'm sure they will after this scintillating conversation, want to follow your work, want to see what you're thinking about politics now, about want to make sure they, they're up on the latest of, of your research, where, how should they do that? Well, it's easy because, um, as you know, Ezra, I'm, I'm the director of something called the Scholars Strategy Network, which is not just about me, believe me. It's now got close to 700 professors uh, graduate students to senior professors from more than 150 American universities. And uh, the premise of that organization is not partisan. It's that whatever work we do uh, in any sphere of research that is relevant to public issues in the United States or the United States in the world, we should be willing to take our books, articles, research reports, and boil them down into two-page briefs that people can easily read and get an idea whether they'd like to learn more and follow up. And the organization has a fabulous website, scholarsstrategynetwork.org, that has profiles of every one of our members, including me, where briefs on their work are available and where links to their underlying articles and research projects are available. And it also often pulls those sets of work together in spotlights on topics about politics or social movements or policy issues so that it's kind of one-stop shopping. You can click on the spotlight and get to a whole group of people that are working on, on similar topics. So if you want to know more about me, you just go to that site, you go to my profile under the list of scholars, and you'll see a zillion links that'll take you to even the latest work that this new research group is doing. And we will have that, for, for those of you listening, we will have that link in our show notes. Uh, Theta Scotchpool, thank you so much for, for coming on today and spending, spending this time with us. It was, it was really fascinating to hear. And it's an honor to talk with you. You're one of the leaders in the, the, the good side of the new journalism. So thank you very thank much. Thank you. That was Theta Scotchpool. Thank you so much to her for the time she spent with me. Thank you to you for the time you've spent with us. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez, and to Box.com and Panoply Network for, for putting on this show. I will see you next week. <laughs>